0: Welcome to episode four of the Royal Meteorological Society podcast. I'm Richard, I'm the digital lead here at the Society.
1: And I'm Liz Bentley, I'm Chief Executive here at the Royal Met Society.
0: So we're looking back at Weather Live, which we did at the weekend, our our annual conference, our now annual conference.
1: Yeah, so Weather Live is something we've tried for the first time as a a one-day event. We're going to run this annually going forward and it took place in London this year on the 4th of November at Central Hall, Westminster. Uh, Very much divided into three sessions, so the morning we looked at weather and photography uh, and then after lunch we broke into two different sessions, so we had one on the great storm of 1987, it was the 30th anniversary of that storm this year, and then the final session was on weather and gardening.
0: Yeah, and this is the, uh, we're going to feature the interview from the second session, the storm, the great storm session, which was a very amusing interview, Mm -hmm, it has to be said, uh, with Michael Fish, who's quite a character. Um, And Peter Gibbs, another ex-BBC weatherman, and Ed Eichen from the RHS garden in Wakehurst, Wakehurst, which was badly affected by the storm. So yeah, it was a a really entertaining uh, interview, so I hope you enjoy. Mm. So we're here at uh, Weather Live in London. We have three sessions today, and the second session is looking back at the huge storm that we had in 1987. It's 30 years since that happened. Um, We have Michael Fish. Uh, How do I introduce you?
2: Superstar. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> meteorological
0: superstar. There you go. That's a good one. So we have uh, Michael Fish, who is a, a meteorological superstar. Uh, he joined the Met Office in 1962 and then uh, began his broadcasting career in 1972, uh, working for BBC Radio and then became part of the television crew in 1974. So he was on television on the 15th of october 1987 telling us that there wasn't going to be a hurricane um, the other people i have in the room are peter gibbs also former bbc weather broadcaster uh, and also ed Ikin, who is head of landscape and horticulture at wakehurst q's wild botanic garden in sussex so we'll get on to why those guys are here uh, later on so we're talking to michael first obviously uh you did the forecast on the evening of the 15th of October and you knew that it was everyone knew that it was going to be windy? Let me correct you straight
2: oh. away. I was not on the evening before. Oh, okay. I was on the morning and, and lunchtime before. Okay. Dear old Bill Giles, bless him, was on the evening before and he, if anything, made a far worse forecast than I ever did because all he said was it'll be a little bit breezy up the channel. Oh, okay. Which <laughs> I think was the biggest <laughs> un- underestimate I've ever heard.
0: Of. Right. Okay, fair enough. I've, I stand corrected, um, but how has, how has that broadcast uh, affected you? How did it affect you at the time, sort of immediately afterwards, and then uh, in your career ever since?
2: Well, it took a long time for anything to, to, to realise that things had gone wrong. First of all, as far as the weather was concerned, I was on duty five o'clock the next morning, so I was up at half past three or something, and drove into the, weather, to the television centre but because of the, the route I took, there was no sign of any damage whatsoever. And when I got to the television centre, we were literally on our own in those days. We were in a broom cupboard, we did everything ourselves. And it wasn't until the middle of the morning, sometime later, that the message trickled through to me that, that uh, something had gone a little bit adrift. So
0: how badly adrift did it go?
2: Well, completely badly adrift in a way, but it it wasn't all bad news, because five days before on the farming forecast, we actually said that there was going to be some extremely stormy weather on the way. On the day before, I actually said on a different channel that to, to, to batten down the hatches, there's some extremely stormy weather on the way. And it was all going quite nicely to plan until the last minute when the damn thing just decided to change track, and instead of going up the channel, and zapping the French, it decided to turn left a bit and go move across the uh, southeastern corner of the country. Okay. In terms of global forecast, that was a very small error. In in terms of people living in Britain, it was a hell of a big error.
0: Sure. And and I understand that uh, back then that was pretty much unforecastable, but now it's more easy to see when that kind of event might happen
2: yes I mean we did have a problem in those days in the lack of observations there wasn't very much at all around there were no observations from the bay of biscay to speak of these days we have absolutely millions and billions of observations pieces of data going into the computer so famous last words it shouldn't happen again but with the weather of course nothing is completely predictable and it could happen again but the likelihood of it happening is pretty slim now. Okay. In fact, it was only a few years later when we did get a forecast right. There was an identical storm, Burns, 1990, uh, which was extremely well forecast, and unfortunately also resulted in quite a number of deaths because that was in the daytime. The storm we're talking about, the 87 one, was at night, which was a blessing in a way.
0: Right, sure. Peter?
3: I think it's worth adding that uh, – well, there's a couple of things, really. I think even today, uh, the 87 storm would still be a challenge because it was, mm. a, it was a very volatile situation. And as Mike says, you know, it was a really, really near miss in terms of uh, getting the forecast wrong or right. Just the space of 50 miles difference in the track of the storm okay. made a huge difference to whether it affected South East England sure. or not, and even today, with vastly improved forecasts, uh, massive computing power, lots more observations, that's still within the sort of margins of error, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that has changed, though, is the ability to actually communicate uh, what's going on. Um, you know, a couple of broadcasts was all really people had when Mike mm-hmm. was actually on the TV at that time, one at lunchtime, one in the evening. And that was pretty much a lot. There was no way really of updating people right. as, as things changed. Now, of course, we all have smartphones, we've got our apps, we've got uh, social media, and we've got 24-hour TV as well. So it's much easier when things do start to change to actually
0: get the message across. Okay. So in the in immediate aftermath of that, or in the sort of weeks and months, how badly do you think that affected people's trust in weather forecasting?
2: Not really much at all. Oh, really? I had quite a few letters and things like that, not a single letter of complaint. Every letter I had was sympathetic, offering advice, that sort of thing. In fact, the whole of my career, which is, God knows how long, 30, 35 years, I never ever received a rude or threatening letter. All the ones I received were either that sort of thing or warning autographs or something. Okay. The British public, I think, loved us in a way, appreciated we did a very, job, very difficult job, and that we did it to the best of our ability.
0: Mm. And do you think the public trust weather forecasts now or or are aware of the amount of information that you guys work with? I think they
2: trust the weather forecasts even more now because they they are very seldom wrong. Okay. And if they are wrong, it's only a minor wrong, not a major wrong. Right. Shall we also say it's a global forecast? The British Met Office supplied data to all other countries in the world. In fact, the British Met Office were responsible for forecasting the accurate track that the hurricanes over the Caribbean took a few weeks ago.
0: Okay.
3: It's interesting. Whenever somebody asks what I do for a living and I say, well, a forecaster, you forecaster, know, the first comment that comes back usually is, oh, you always get it wrong, don't you? Uh, but then very quickly they go on to say, oh, no, I'm only joking. Actually, you're really good these days. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a, a, a recognition there that, that we do most of the time to do quite a reasonable job.
0: So, Michael, today you're, you're doing a Q&A session. What kind, of, what kind of questions do people ask you? Probably the same sort of questions I'm asking <laughs> you, but.
2: Well, I don't know. I'll wait and and see, really. Uh, Unfortunately, my sidekick hasn't managed to come along. (laughs) He was going to take the the technical sort of questions and I was going to take the whatever else there is, the sort of things that you're asking or about to ask, Okay. whether I collect ties or... Well, that was was my (laughs) next
0: question, is you're wearing a particularly wonderful tie today with the the old-school BBC weather forecasting symbols on it. You're you're very well-known for your ties, apparently.
2: Yes, it all came about as an accident, because, I don't know, you probably don't remember that far back, but do you remember the Kipper ties?
0: Yes, well, yeah.
2: Well, they were invented by Michael Fish. Oh, right. But not this Michael Fish. Okay. I never knew that. (laughs) A different Michael Fish, and I think uh, he uh, sort of gave me a couple of ties, and after that I, I built up a large collection, first of all, of ties with Fish motifs on, and then when they became available, weather ones, weather charts and weather symbols and things like that. It was all a bit of a waste of time and money, really, because the cameras didn't have the resolution to show them. Oh on right. air. Um, <laughs> the but, but I wore them just the same and I got some accolades. I got a and of the Year award for three or four years running. Wow.
0: So you're kind of the, the forerunner of John Snow, who's quite well known for his yeah, ties.
3: Yes, that's right. Yeah, and David Dimbleby. And to be fair, it wasn't just the ties, was it, Mike? I think the jackets were quite loud at times as well, let's say. Well,
2: the the BBC wanted a new image all those years ago. They had had sort of grey-suited, stained, stuffy, middle-aged men, uh, Bert Ford and Graham Parker, for instance, and they decided they wanted a new image. They decided they wanted something young, handsome, suave, sophisticated, well-dressed, modest. So naturally, they chose me. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant.
0: So talking about the, the graphics on your tie, uh, graphics. Obviously, you were there when it went from the very basic beginnings through all the way through to you know the computer yeah, forecasts I saw, and stuff. I How saw did that?
2: Three or four different changes. We started off with Met Office plotting symbols of all things. How the public understood that, I don't know. Things like triangles and and strange tea. black, black t- dots, t- dots for rain. Oh, no. Black dots. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So that soon changed to these symbols, which are still used to this day on, online, not on the charts. 1984, we went, then went through to computer graphics, and then that has changed again to a different source of computer graphics. And it's uh, supposed to have changed again, but it's been somewhat delayed for the new set. Of
3: I, I only ever had to deal with computer graphics, Mike, but um, with the old magnetic rubber Symbols and Mm. isobars and so Mm. on that you used
2: it used to take ages didn't it It to set up the
3: graphics about
2: Two or three hours before each broadcast (laughs) the Atlantic chart was the so-and-so because that was (laughs) huge I don't know how how big it was Because this room sort of thing and that used to take at least two hours and then the British arts charts were quite easy after that but and you had to change it for every broadcast because they they insisted on one broadcast had to have an actual chart the next broadcast had to have a forecast chart. So there's no way you could get away with using the same one twice. And uh, and the studio was always in, in use at the time. They used to record the old grey whistle, whistle test in there. other things. Oh, wow. So you had to fight around other things being done <laughs> as, at the same time. So you had to elbow the Rolling Stones out yeah. of <laughs> to put your icebergs yeah. up right. on the, on the uh, map. And points of view, that was another thing that we had in our studio. So it was never, never easy.
0: So you're actually... Uh, in the very well-known song about John Ketley. And oh, that's I my, f- my favourite line in that song is, John yeah. Ketley is a weatherman, John Ketley is a weatherman, that's, that's, and so is Michael Fish. That's,
2: that's, <laughs> a, that's a useless song. No, my song came out years before that one. Okay. And it had a chorus, I wish I wish he was like Michael Fish, cute and cuddly and quite a dish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't
0: lost it, Michael. For sure. <laughs> um, so in the, uh, in the notes for your session this afternoon, there's just one more thing that I wanted to ask you about. You're responsible for wiping out thousands of pigeons, not personally. I oh, see. that
2: was years ago. Yes, when we started on television, you just did two or three broadcasts a day, so you had a proper job at the weather centre as well, because you couldn't just spend ages sitting around doing nothing. And one of my jobs used to be in those days forecasting for pigeon racing, which was a big thing for Northern England. People used to send their pigeons off all over France and. Uh, hope they'd get home and win them a prize, and there was one occasion where we hadn't forecast fog, and tens of thousands of pigeons ended up in the middle of the English Channel, never to come home again. <laughs> Flying around in circles I d- until I they didn't dropped. Admit that I did the forecast. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were worth millions of pounds.
0: Oh my goodness! Well, okay, that's that's fantastic. Thank you, Michael. Um, so let's move on to uh, Peter and Ed. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, there were obviously many large and small victims of the Great Storm. Uh, one of the big victims, I guess, was Wakehurst Estate in West Sussex. So, Peter, today you're talking about the, the meteorological uh, circumstances that caused that destruction. And, Ed, you're talking about how it was rebuilt thereafter yeah. and, and you know what you learned during that process. So if you could fill us in on, on what you'll be talking about, that'd be great.
3: Yeah, I mean, millions of trees were actually brought down in the storm. I mean, the the storm itself, the sort of wind speeds that we saw, um, wouldn't be unusual across the north of Scotland. Uh, Probably once or twice every winter, somewhere like Shetland (laughs) would see those sort of wind speeds. Uh, But to see winds gusting up to 80, 100 miles an hour across southeastern parts of England, uh, with trees still in leaf, the ground saturated as well after a pretty unsettled spell of weather, it was a really, really bad combination. Uh, The real destructive nature of the storm came from primarily something called a sting jet, which is uh, an area of very fast moving air, it's got very high momentum, dives into the back of the storm from sort of middle levels of the atmosphere around about 15,000 feet or so. As it descends, uh, you get uh, rain and snow actually falling into this dry air and evaporating which actually gives it even more impetus because it, uh, it actually makes the air even denser. And so essentially you've got this jet of very strong winds plunging down, hitting the ground surface and then spreading out. And so it's these thumping gusts that are actually the most destructive force from a storm like this. Back in 87, it was early days, really, of understanding what this feature was and the fact that it even existed in the sort of storms that we get in this part of the world. Um, Now we understand it much better. Um, But that swept across that southeastern corner of England. I mean, a relatively small area um, in comparison to the rest of the UK, but that was what really caused the, the destruction Uh, which, um, well, Ed, I think you witnessed yourself, didn't you, back in your early days?
4: Yeah, I was living on a big farm estate at the time. uh, We couldn't get out for a week. Every single road was covered by trees, and we had flood water up to our back door. We had no power. We had no telephone lines. So, yeah, I didn't experience the storm professionally, but personally it had a, a massive impact on me. And in terms of... Wakehurst, I think all those factors that Peter described, and then two other things as well, really. One, the great advantage of Wakehurst is its topography. You know, it has some wonderful kind of high ridges. And of course, with the sting jets, specific bits of the estate were really exposed uh, to the kind of destructive power of those winds. And then also our our management as well, you know, is that, you know, the hard statistic is 20,000 trees fell, but that was 20,000 trees potentially of quite a similar age you know, we presented these kind of big, sort of woody cliffs, if you like, to the storm, um, and possibly, you know, not negligence, but a degree of sentimentality, or or the or the desire not to perhaps break. Sen- you know, decades of land management meant that we probably presented a monotonous. A sort of, uh, piece of vegetation which was always going to be hit quite kind of uniformly if you know what i mean
3: mm-hmm. so a lot of these were what sort of 19th century plantings
4: yeah so the the, the classic kind of uh <coughs> victorian edwardian landowner plantings you know really from the 1850s onwards you you kind of stated your
2: wealth and power through trees really i think you've left some of it untouched haven't you
4: yeah two two things really um It's easy to kind of imagine the post-storm period as being Mm. a a bit of a panicky, knee-jerk response, but actually it was pretty progressive. You know, From the forestry side, people were saying, well, let's see what natural regeneration Mm. looks like. Uh, And actually, although these trees were horizontal, a lot of them still had living roots in the ground uh, and produced really a vertical response Mm. after the storm. And we've got some really interesting examples of what that regeneration looks like. And then the other thing, for the more cultivated or planted areas, it was to actually think really carefully about what a large-scale plan looked like, not just jamming as many young saplings into the ground mm. as we could, mm. much more, you know, let's actually plan this as a
2: piece of landscape. Yeah. It's, it's in a way nature's way, isn't it, to thin them out of regular intervals? Yeah, I, and I think probably we had,
4: and I say we collectively, had just taken our eye off the ball in terms of that regenerative work and the storm was a little reminder of actually what is a ideally a 30 to 50 year cycle of regeneration and it is being a little bit brave every once in a while
3: so it seemed like an absolute disaster at the time ed but yeah. but looking back it's now seen as as having been quite an opportunity for for people to reassess and to
4: move on yeah and you know we, we talked about the sort of victorian and Edwardian landowners they did impose a new style of gardening on on the landscape you know it was using exotic trees and shrubs to create really quite a new horticultural vocabulary you have to go back i would say to the 18th century and to sort of capability brown to see another kind of really large scale movement and essentially we were handed that opportunity again um, and you know some people the instinct was just to to cover ground again but the places that probably um had a little bit more uh, horticultural naus or perhaps had been starting to think about the theme of of the sites they looked after, actually did just plan properly. And, you know, great landscapes take time. And in our instance, we actually went out to the wild and collected seeds from North American trees and Chilean trees and New Zealand trees to start this regeneration. So there was no rush to get things going again. But the result now is a really positive one.
3: And so you've got trees from, as you say, Chile, which are growing in the areas that were devastated back in 1987, uh, and they're from areas that are now threatened by climate change and human degradation of the environment back in their native area.
4: Yeah, we have. And I, I think botanic gardens should always try to do two things. They should always be beautiful. They should present the public with an interesting piece of landscape, Uh, But ideally they're they're doing something as well, they have a scientific purpose and I think Mm. from our point of view we can actually look after really significant trees in what we call ex-situ collections, basically they're not growing in Chile anymore but viable kind of genetic material now grows in Sussex which could hypothetically be used for reintroduction and no plant collecting is is done in isolation these days, it's always part of a global network our Chilean collecting was done with a range of partners across the world, so all of those collections are coordinated.
2: And you have the seed bank, of course. And,
4: and this is this fascinating duality that the seed bank is where anything that we call um, orthodox seeds, you know, that can happily mm-hmm. go down to minus 20 and go dormant, is kept. And anything that can't be banked. Uh, what we call recalcitrant seed, we will grow outside. So we've actually got two types mm. of plant conservation on the same mm. site. It, it's, it's a very nice kind of demonstration of how a botanic garden can do yeah. a thorough job.
3: This is the Millennium Seed Bank at Wakehurst, which is ultimately aiming to have seeds from every plant species in the world banked there.
4: It, it's, it's a remarkable place. I mean, David Attenborough describes it as one of the most important places on Earth. Uh, 25% of all the world's flora by 2020 is the target. It's a a demanding target. We do that ourselves, we do that with in-country partners. We have over 100 partnerships across the world, basically dedicated to banking, targeted species. It's an obvious question, 25% of what? Uh, So we try to focus on plants of economic value, plants that are endangered or plants that are endemic, You know, that are only growing on one island. Uh, and it's it, it's it's a very um, sort of profound drive towards plant conservation and a truly useful contribution mm. that Kew makes back to the world.
3: Ed, you said you were very young uh, during 1987 yes. storm, um, but you've worked with people who were involved in well Nyman's Garden, yes. Wakehurst Garden at the time. What what was their response to these to this devastation of these places that they'd, they'd grown up with and worked in and loved?
4: Yeah. And actually, a lot of these people lived on sites as well. And the, the the thing you hear most of all is the following morning, people were actually not knowing where they were. And you realize how much of your innate orientation is done through trees. You know, there's big kind of landmarks in your peripheral vision. And just not, where, where am I? And <laughs> trying to actually go through the garden, just to sort of start to unpick what on earth had happened, but not truly knowing which part of the garden you were in. So that was the first just truly initial shock. And obviously, these people, would have the trees weren't just orientation points they were friends you know there would be you know one-off species champion trees you know unique kind of representations of certain plants Uh, and the first response really was just relentless hard work Uh, you know the teams did whatever they could themselves obviously suddenly there was uh, chainsaws being traded at quite high prices <laughs> across <laughs> across the southeast and short term contracts spring up everywhere uh, and wakehurst's recovery program was really 3 years it took 3 years to get mm. to the outlying areas and slowly get everything that was horizontal off the ground and of course not just the tree trunks it was the root plates was the real monster mm. and nobody had an innate knowledge of how to deal with giant root plates of of trees, and a lot of them were either buried in huge holes or covered in kerosene and set fire to, and um, yeah, it, it was a very, very demanding period.
3: Do you think those people have come to see it as
4: a, as a positive influence, or has the trauma just lingered on? I think there's enough now, you know, 30 years is a great watershed point to actually look at devastation, recovery, and now consolidation and really future planning. And I think if we hadn't gone through that arc, mm. you would look back to the trauma, but to actually see trees towering over your head that you planted as part of the recovery has probably completed the process of, mm. of, of, sort of healing and sort of moving us
2: forward-looking again. Yeah, yeah Tony, I was t- talking to Tony Kirkham. I mean, he seems to be quite optimistic these days. Close to retirement, of course, which makes him even more optimistic. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tony's been able to um, plant and then replants trees, you know, in his 38 year career, you know, things that he probably initially thought, well, perhaps I've got that a little bit or too close, he's been able to propagate and replant. He's seen through like almost two whole cycles of mm. tree care and tree management and, you know, that, that whole ability to just make really informed decisions about where to plant a tree and how to plant it well, uh, it's, it's incredible knowledge to have within the organisation. Mm.
3: Tony Kirkham's the uh, the head of trees basically at, uh, yes. at Kew Gardens, yes. isn't
0: it? Yes. Yeah. Well, guys, that's a very very uh, interesting conversation, and I'm sure um, the the Q and A this afternoon will be equally interesting. Uh, thank you very much for your time, uh, Michael, Peter, and Ed. Thank
3: you. Thank you. I wouldn't bank on it.
0: leave that in (laughs) so following that amazing interview if people want to find out more about the great storm uh, where should they go
1: well, so there's lots of information out there. Obviously, that the anniversary of the storm was on the 16th of October, and if you just Google Great Storm 87, you'll find lots of information, videos, images, and so forth. But I'll redirect you to the Society's webpage, where we've collated a few bits of information about uh, the, the facts and figures of the storm itself and you know, um, some of the reasons behind why the storm was so, so severe. So that's www.armets.org forward slash great hyphen storm.
0: Fantastic, and I'll I'll put some further links in the description of the podcast to uh, the song that I mentioned, uh, which Michael shot down in flames, uh, and the sh- and the song that he mentioned, which is actually very amusing, um, and we yeah, have various other links as well. So uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, see you next time.
1: Bye for now.